Ladies, we did it. Wait, what? <laughs> what did we do? We produced an entire season of CNUSD Ed Chat. That's awesome. Oh, I think it gets the slow clap. This is the final episode of our first season, and we're ending strong. To wrap up CNUSD Ed Chat's first season, we finish our chat with a longtime teacher, writer, and educational genius. So in our last episode, we heard part one of our interview with Kelly Gallagher, and he's a teacher in Anaheim, California. It was really about the importance of reading and writing and also choice and volume. We recommend that you listen to part one if you haven't done so already. Let's pick up where we left off last time. Kate continues her conversation with Kelly Gallagher. When I saw your headline, and I think you spoke about this at NCTE too, um, I, this, like for example, a book like 1984 is challenging. A lot of our students will go directly to SparkNotes. And so I say, you're not allowed to use SparkNotes. I'll be checking if you use SparkNotes, but you say that you defend the use of SparkNotes. If students need to have more experience and stamina tackling these complex texts, how can SparkNotes support their learning? Yeah, this is a shift after 30 years, and I did receive a lot of blowback. Uh, there's a there's a, a very intelligent response uh, disagreeing with me mm. um, on my blog, and then there's people responding to that. So I, I invite people to go take a peek at that. This comes back to the very first question you asked me. Do you want to spend 10 weeks on a, on a literary work? Mm. Because Romeo and Juliet is so hard for my kids. We'll, we'll spend nine weeks just trying to figure out what the heck it says. Mm -hmm. And I've just come to believe, you know, Romeo and Juliet, when I first started teaching, was a little bit too hard for my kids. Now, these years later, it's way too hard for my kids. And so I have to make a decision as an educator. Do I want to spend 10 weeks on this play? I've come to the idea that my goal is not to turn a 14 or 15-year-old kid into somebody who can expertly translate 400-year-old language. My goal is to get kids to understand what's happening in the play so that we can spend our thinking time reading and writing and arguing about the themes and the big ideas and the imaginative rehearsals I want them to take away from Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet's not just a love story. Romeo and Juliet says things to the kids in my community. It says things like, why do gangs exist? And, and, and can long-term feuds ever be buried? It's an important question where I teach. And so I would rather spend my time on that than on having kids trying to figure out what this phrase means. When I was in New York City, I, I, I went and saw uh, a play on Broadway, Twelfth Night. It was brilliant. Mark Rylance won the Tony as best actor. And then he did that Spielberg yeah, film where he was Bridge of Spies, yes. where he was a spy. I sat in my apartment in Manhattan before I went to that that play, I had not read Twelfth Night in 30 years. You guess what I did before I went to the play? I'm going to guess you checked SparkNotes. I went to SparkNotes. <laughs> I read every single thing I could about that play. And, and I then, would do the same thing. And then I went to the play. Did that spoil the play for me? No, it positioned me mm -hmm. so I didn't have to spend all of my you know, cognitive time trying to figure out what's going on here. I knew what was going on so I could think about the big ideas that Shakespeare wanted me to think about. You know, I have special education kids who are reading at the sixth grade. Am I going to hand them Ham Hamlet or Romeo and Juliet all by themselves and say good luck? That's bad teaching. 
we have to meet kids where they are. And, mm-hmm. and one of the reasons we're killing readers is we're, we're taking kids who don't like to read and say, here's a hard book and here's another one and here's another mm-hmm. one. And we're not scaffolding them or helping them. To give a kid a book that is four or five grade levels above their reading ability and say, I'm not going to help you any more than worksheets and, and quizzes, it, it to me is, is it borders on criminality. I think a big problem is at the high school level, we don't necessarily gauge what our reading levels of our kids are. But I mean, they've done all the testing and at the Lexile levels that they can read at at the lower levels, but by the time they get to high school. So I think teachers really need to be more active in figuring out where their students are reading level are. And then, well, that's a million dollar question because you have a kid, you have 35 kids in a room. Exactly. It's taken me 30 years to figure this out. I've built in 10 minutes of reading time every single day in my classroom and some parents and some administrator goes, wait, what, what's happening in here? The kids are just simply sitting there reading quietly for 10 minutes. Well, yeah, but the reason they're doing that is because while they're reading quietly, I'm conferring with three different students every single day. Mm-hmm. Because before I talk to every kid, you could sit in a class of 35 and hide forever, mm-hmm. right? And this is why kids fake read. And this is why my 12th graders say to me, I haven't read a book since the fifth grade. Because nobody ever sat down one-to-one with them and mm-hmm. said, what are you reading? How's it going? Do you like to read? Oh, you hate to read? Let's talk about that. Um, and so this last year in which I built that reading time in, I gave up almost 20% of my school year. But I had a school day on kids reading quietly while I do the reading conferences. I don't have the statistics in front of me. But my average ninth grader read 14 books hmm. last year. And that's because, and I, they really read them and I know they're reading them because I conferred with each and I can, even if I haven't read the book, I can sit down with you and tell in two minutes whether you've read the book. Some people might say, well, that's kind of a waste of 10 minutes, but you tell me, is, a, is it a waste of 10 minutes when my classroom average is 14 books read? Mm-hmm. Is it a waste of time when my most reluctant reader who hasn't read a book since the third or fourth grade read seven books mm-hmm. this year, cover to cover? To get at this volume issue, I've had to really ask hard questions on how to restructure my 53 minutes that I spend with my kids every day. No, I, I appreciate that you do that because I hear from teachers all the time that there there isn't time to meet with their students, but you have told us a way of how we can meet with our students in our classroom. Um, can you tell me about your work with Penny Kittle? I've been hearing uh, and following you on Twitter that you've been working with her and, and her classroom. Can you tell us about that? So Penny Kittle is a teacher at Kennett High School in North Conway, New Hampshire. I've been a big fan of Penny's long before I knew her. Um, uh, Brilliant, brilliant educator, brilliant thinker, brilliant writer. Penny and I sort of kind of crossed paths here and there years ago because we were kind of speak at some of the same conferences. And then for the last five or six years, we've actually spoken every year at the national conference together. And one day we just said, we're trying to answer the question, how does it all fit? Because people ask me this all the time. They come up and say, well, we've read all your books, but we don't really get how does that fit in a year? Mm. How does that fit in a week? How does that fit in an hour? And so Penny and I actually had a hard time answering that question. So we decided we were going to try to answer it. So we planned uh, last year, but prior to last school year, we decided we were going to concurrently teach a ninth grade class together. Uh, on both sides of the country. Uh, We were going to plan the year together, teach the year together, have our kids interact with one another across the country. So not only am I doing reading and writing groups in my classroom, I'm doing reading and writing groups across 
across the country. How are you guys connecting with each other with Skype? It's been a nightmare technology-wise because even sharing email with school safety firewalls and their firewall is different than our firewall. And I mean, I won't lie. It was a nightmare trying to get it straightened out. We do a lot of uh, uh, email interaction. Okay. We do a lot of Google Doc sharing, okay. uh, Padlet kind of uh, stuff where kids are commenting on the book. Mm. Kids are reading Romeo and Juliet. We would say group one. We would open a Google Doc and give those eight kids, four of mine and four of hers, access to that doc. So we're teaching Romeo and Juliet at the exact same time, and the kids are going on to Google Docs and they're talking about it. I'm laughing because I... Last year, I had a, there's a three-hour time difference between California and New Hampshire. But I said, okay, you know, the, the kids in New Hampshire, they've shared some thinking on Romeo and Juliet. So open up, open up the uh, laptops and see what they've said, and I'd like you to respond. And so the kids started doing this, and I, I felt kind of this, this weird vibe in the room. And I said, what? What's going on? Hey, kids, what's happening? And they said, Mr. Gallagher, they're on right now. We're talking in real time. Oh. And so they were talking, even though it was a three-hour time difference, they were, and the kids were so excited to do that. And I think this digital age that we're now entering, it invites teachers to open up reading and writing communities that are beyond their classroom walls, that kids read and write more critically when they know there's an audience other than the teacher involved. And I'm not saying it has to be across the country. It can be across the hallway or high school A in Norco with high school B in Norco, there's no reason why ninth grade teachers couldn't say, let's teach this unit at the same time and let's start doing some of this kind of interaction. We exchange videos, we exchange movies, we exchange PSAs, public service announcements, that we're just in the infancy of, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm laughing because I've taught 32 years. I, I'm kind of sad I'm going to miss this because even though I'm trying to stay on the edge, what the edge is 10 years from now is going to be very different mm -hmm. from what the edge is now. So we're having our kids uh, open up communities. You know, my kids in Southern California, primarily Latino students, they live in a very specific cultural bubble. And those kids they are interacting with were primarily Anglo kids in North Conway, New Hampshire. That's a, they're mountain kids. Uh, and so they, there's a very different cultures, even though they're both ninth graders and even though they're both kids, there were real differences. And when we were, we were studying political candidates who were running for office, you know, those kids started interacting. They didn't agree with one another. And I think it's healthy for my kids to, to get out of their bubble mm -hmm. and hear other people, even if they really don't like what they're hearing. We should all do that. <laughs> and I think it's really important for the uh, New Hampshire kids to, to say, wow, these kids think very differently than us. And I think school, this is the place where the teacher, this is way bigger than curriculum. This is about what kind of civil discourse are we going to have when we live in a media culture where everybody's yelling at each other? Mm -hmm. We have got to change this, and we have to build listening skills and respectful disagreement kind of skills. The digital age is really providing us the opportunity to do that. Teachers, go on CNUSD EdChat on Twitter, hashtag, and look for another colleague in the area who's maybe willing to, to work and plan with you. Or out of the area. Or out of the area. Yeah, thank you. You know, I could go on Twitter. I've seen people on Twitter. I'm looking for a teacher who wants to teach Romeo and Juliet in September. Are you out there? And find somebody in Kansas City or in Florida or in Canada that wants to, that wants to teach the same thing. I mean, I really think we have to... 
live in our kids' world, and that's mm-hmm. the world our kids are living in. And so this present, presents us an opportunity to do richer and, and, and deeper teaching of reading and writing. You have a blog titled The Dreaded Welcome Back to School Faculty Meeting, and this was such an intriguing title for me. You describe how at your staff meeting, you discuss all the typical things that I think we're all familiar with, discipline policies, setting up our gradebook, but there was no discussion of more important issues such as building a culture of reading. What do you mean by a culture of reading, and why should this be an important discussion topic at schools, and and how can schools build this culture who haven't considered this before? Well, that's a lot there. Um, (laughs) You know, I can think about sitting in meetings where we're arguing about tardy policy. One year, we argued for for months on what color to paint the school. Uh, And while we're having these conversations, I'm looking out the window at classroom, 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 classroom that do not have books. I think we get lost in the weeds sometimes that you could teach every standard. You could refine every discipline policy. You could make sure every health card is filled out. But if we don't have serious and long-term focus on raising the volume of reading and writing, uh, it doesn't matter how many standards you, you teach. Dick Allington, Richard Allington is one of my favorite reading researchers. He says, reading is less about ability and more about opportunity. So where is the opportunity to read? Uh, I ask this question a lot as I travel around. I'll stand in front of large audiences and I'll ask, how many of you teach at a school in which the faculty sits together and has substantial conversations on whether kids have enough interesting things to read or not? And I can tell you, internationally, that answer is less than 5% of hands go up in the room. So we're talking about a lot of things, but we've taken the eye off the ball. The amount of reading a kid does K-12 is the single strongest indicator of how successful that child is going to be later in life. So why are we spending time talking about the tardy policy? We should be talking about where do kids have access to interesting books. Uh, I'll change the metaphor. No one's going to, you can talk about swimming all you want, but if there's no water in the pool, nobody is going to swim. Mm -hmm. And so we have to talk about the things that are important. Uh, Writing volume is important. I mean, the research is really, really, it's not even debated anymore. Kids who write a lot in all content areas remember the stuff more, they learn it more, they go deeper, that writing is not just an activity in which we uh, prove to the teacher we, what we know, although that's certainly a part of it. But when a, a kid writes, two things happen. One, he can demonstrate what he knows, but two, which is even more important, and I don't think teachers remember this, I know students don't know it, and I don't think parents have considered this. When a kid in a history class writes, that writing that is being produced is not just simply an exercise in putting down what you know. That when we write, we are led to brand new thinking. That the act of writing itself is generative. It generates new thinking. I tell my kids, we quick write when we don't know what to write because it leads us into generative thinking. And if a kid's not writing about the Civil War, or the kid's not writing about photosynthesis, or the kid's not writing about Romeo and Juliet, there's really no proof the kid deeply understands that text. Um, I've given teachers across North America hard text to read, and then I have them score what they, what, 
what they think their level of comprehension is, one to 10. Mm-hmm. And then I have them write about it. And then I have them score it again. And I would mm-hmm. say at least 70% of the time, the teachers say, you know what? I understand this a little bit richer and deeper because I've written about it. Mm-hmm. That that writing led me to an aha moment that doesn't occur when kids just talk or listen to the teacher lecture all period. That there should be a lot of ungraded, low-pressure writing going on in class because we we write to discover our thinking. Okay, so there's still time for our educators and our leaders to kind of rethink their back-to-school faculty meeting if they haven't already done so. I think we should survey kids. You know, I've been in schools where, oh, we're a high-performing school. Our kids read. Really? Let me interview them. Mm. (laughs) You know? Take take your AP kids. How many books have you really read? I don't read at all. Mm Mm-hmm. I get it. Back school, it's not just the back to school faculty Mm -hmm. meeting. It's all faculty meetings where it's sort of flavor of the month and there's not a thread of committed, we're going to increase, uh, pick one. In Anaheim Union High School District, we are committed to increasing the volume of writing done in all content area classes. We're now on our third year of staff development in that, and our third year of PLCs, uh, for parents who might be listening to that, that's professional learning communities, uh, where we meet and we discuss this over and over, and we bring student work, and what can we do to make this kid a better writer, and we come back, and this is not a, a, a one-and-done thing, but this is, in, in Anaheim, we're careful not even to not even call it an initiative, because the word initiative has a connotation that it's mm-hmm. going to go away. Let's pick one or two things that we know are true. We know that kids need to read a lot more. We know that kids need to write a lot more. And let's design faculty meetings where those levels of focus remain front and center in front of the teachers who are in front of our kids every day. All right. Our last question, we ask this of all our guests. Um, We call this segment Tomorrow, This Week, This Month. And our big question is, with so many changes to 21st century education and learning, and you talked about different initiatives that come and go, what advice can you give to teachers or students to try tomorrow, to try this week, and to try this month? Let's start on the big picture and work backwards. I would say this month, this year, the rest of your career, for me, is building and maintaining a classroom library so that kids have access to texts. Librarians are my heroes, don't get me wrong. But there's something that happens in the classroom when I book talk a book and can hand it to the Mm -hmm. kid right then and there. I believe all my kids like to read. They just don't know it. Mm -hmm. Uh, They they have been beaten down by testing, uh, and they've been beaten down by the teacher always selecting. Mm -hmm. So I would say building that classroom library on the reading side uh, gets at the bigger idea that we have to have much more student choice in the curriculum. Choice does not mean watered down. It does not mean less academic. It means that we give kids choice in really exploring thinking that they're interested in thinking. So if we're studying the Civil War, the kid might pick, you know, Abraham Lincoln as his choice of study. Another student might pick, uh, you know, the reconstruction of the South or whatever it might be that we that we're not all answering the same question at the same time, that we bring more inquiry into our classrooms and we have kids generate the things that they're interested in, in doing. Um, this week, you know, I would just say let's let's focus on getting kids to do a lot more reading and writing in class. The SAT 
which is a very big test, probably the biggest test kids take in high school. I can tell you as somebody who's taught seniors for years, I can tell you right now before they even take the test who my three or four top scores are going to be on that test. Who are they? The kids that have read the most and written the most. Uh, and so let's support teachers. Let's give them professional development on how to handle paper load, how not to have to grade everything. I think teachers will do what's right for kids if they understand what's right for kids. Mm -hmm. But I get it, even English teachers. But a lot of contenary teachers have not been taught to see themselves as, as people who know how to deal with writing in the classroom. Um, so I would say to all teachers, let's explore getting more writing into the classroom and getting kids to think in those terms. And then I'd say every day, uh, this concept of modeling is really, really important. If I want my kids to be able to properly annotate a poem or a, a primary source document in a history class, I have to show them what that looks like. That assigning reading is really easy. Teaching reading is really hard. And, and teaching writing is really hard. And in my class, I had an AP teacher once said, this test is really hard. The, the, the AP teacher stood in front of the kids and took the test mm -hmm. and struggled with it and had a hard time. Mm -hmm. It's a hard test even for a teacher, mm -hmm. right? And that we're not afraid to get out in the middle of that classroom and demonstrate what a scientist thinks like, what a, what, what a historian thinks like, what an English major thinks like. So I, I'm in the class. Uh, I don't sit at my desk. I'm, in, I'm out there. If I ask my kids to do something, I do it too. And I'm, I, I go step by step with them and model how to do it. There's a difference between assigning and teaching. I would encourage teachers to, to break their comfort level a little bit, stretch it a little bit, and get out in front and start doing more work right out in front of their kids. Thank you, Kelly Gallagher, for speaking with us here today at CNUSD EdChat. Again, just today I'm informed, I'm inspired, and I'm excited about the future of reading and writing instruction and for our kids. So thank you so very much. It's important work, and I, I, I thank uh, you guys for having me out. I appreciate it very much. Good luck. We want to send a big thank you to Kelly Gallagher for your honest and your open conversation about the choices that teachers make and also about issues students and educators face today. Imagine how we can change the culture of our school by simply changing our staff meetings. We would like to thank all of our listeners for the success of our first season. Ladies, get this. Our episodes have been heard well over a thousand times <gasps> and as far away as Romania, what? Australia, no. Egypt, Hong Kong, Ireland, <laughs> and beyond. And beyond. And it is not just my mother. <laughs> thank you, Mom. We love you. We are truly honored to have been able to chat about the education issues of our times with such amazing knowledgeable guests so look out for season two because that begins next month that's right and in season two we'll feature chats with our very own CNUSD teachers and leaders as well as other experts including Penny Kittle, Pam Allen, Carol Jago, Ernest Morell. Our guests will continue to share with so many changes to 21st century education, what we should try tomorrow, this week, and this month. Don't forget to visit us on Facebook or Twitter or on our show notes page at www.cnusd.k12.ca.us forward slash edchat. We would love to hear from you. See you next season. Take care. Thanks for listening. This episode of CNUSD EdChat was written and produced by Kate Jackson, Ivy Yule Eldridge, Anne-Marie Cortez, and me, Kim Kemmer, and edited by Ken Pucci. Goodbye, listeners. Thank you so much. See you next time. Us. Take care.
Hello, CNUSD EdChat listeners. Registration is now open for the CNUSD Literacy is Everywhere conference. This two-day conference features acclaimed keynote speakers, engaging breakout sessions, and great resources from our sponsors and vendors. And lunch is included. Please join us in Eastville, California at Eleanor Roosevelt High School on July 26th and 27th. This year's keynotes include literacy experts Byron V. Garrett, Allison Marchetti, Rebecca O'Dell, Carol Jago, and the award-winning literacy advocate and co-author of Every Child a Super Reader, Pam Allen. For more information on how to register, check out our show notes page. We hope to see you this summer.